Well, please take a seat. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, because as we've just sung, you are the king over all. God is king, his word unchanging, God the first and God the last. And we pray that as we come to your word this evening, that Father, you would help us to be we're called those who worship you above all and live every day for your glory, turning away from idols, serving you, the true God, and waiting for your Son, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. So do keep your Bible open, please, at that uh, next section of this great book of Deuteronomy. We're in just the last few verses of chapter 12 this evening and then into chapter 13. And if you were here last week, you'll know that we recommenced this sermon series in which we're going through Deuteronomy. And we started a new section of this book in which Moses is detailing for the people of Israel the detailed requirements of God's law. How it is they must live in line with God's law as they live in the land that he is about to give them. And you remember, I hope, that the very first note that Moses struck at the start of this new section is all about idolatry in those first few verses of chapter 12. When the people get into the land, they must banish every form of idolatry from them so that they can worship the Lord alone. And here in the passage we're looking at tonight, notice that Moses returns again, doesn't he, to this same theme of idolatry. And now he gives a, a fuller treatment of it. How must the people of Israel deal with this problem of idolatry whenever it rears its ugly head, which, of course, it will do time and time again? Well, we can sum up the teaching of this passage with the following simple command. Reject idolatry wherever it arises. Reject idolatry from wherever it arises. Now we need to notice right at the start now that the passage breaks down into four main paragraphs. Maybe the Bible you have before you sets it out helpfully in four different paragraphs. And notice that in each paragraph, idolatry arises from a different source. And you see, don't you, Moses is saying to the people of Israel, reject idolatry from wherever it arises. I wonder if you've ever been at a fun fair and maybe played that game where you've got a big mallet and in front of you there are a number of holes and every so often a puppet head uh, pops up in front of you and you have to bash it down as quickly as you can and then uh, another one pops up somewhere else and you bash that one down 
And then another one from somewhere else. And again and again, it happens. It pops up, you bash it down. It pops up somewhere else, you bash it down again. And in a sense, this passage kind of reads a little bit like that funfair game. Moses is saying to these people of Israel, when you get into the land, idolatry is going to keep on popping up, rearing its ugly head. And it's going to appear in some different places. It's going to appear in some different ways. It's going to come from a number of different sources. But just keep on knocking it down. Reject idolatry from wherever it arises. And so to start with, let's look at those four places that Moses mentions from which idolatry can arise. And the first place is that idolatry can arise in your own heart. Moses says, doesn't he, right at the start of the passage, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they've been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same. And notice that here, there's no external pressure to become an idolater. Rather, notice what Moses is describing here. The impulse to give yourself to idolatry comes from within your own heart. No one is pushing them into it in this paragraph. No one is actually trying to persuade them to ditch the Lord and to serve idols instead. And rather, it's the person themselves who is enticed by the very thought of idolatry. And so they become proactive in trying to seek it out. They go searching for idolatry. They say, how did these nations serve their gods? That, That I may do the same. And you see, don't you, Moses is saying idolatry is is not just a problem out there in the unbelieving world. No, idolatry can arise in your own heart, he's saying. Beware of that impulse that can arise in your own heart, which says, I wonder what it would be like to worship something other than the God of the Bible. What else could I give my life to? What else could I make my ultimate treasure? What else can I look to in life to give me the security and to give me the satisfaction for which my soul longs? John Calvin hit the nail on the head when he famously put it like this. The human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. The human mind stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity as it labors under dullness 
and they is sunk in the grossest ignorance. It substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. To these evils, another is added. The God who man has thus conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. The mind in this way conceives the idol and the hand gives it birth. Know that idolatry can arise in your own heart. But of course, that's not the only place where idolatry can pop up. Of course, there are external forces as well at work. And the, the other three paragraphs all speak of external pressure. Now notice, in each case, the pressure is actually coming from people within the body of God's people. It's not the pagan nations themselves. It's rather people from within Israel here. So it's internal to the people of God. That was external to the people being addressed here, the individuals being addressed by Moses. And so he goes on, he points to other places where idolatry can pop up, not just in your own heart, but from others around you. And he, he gives three examples of this. He, he says, firstly, idolatry can arise from a false teacher. Moses says, if a, a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you, and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. So we have this scenario described where some religious teacher, a prophet, arises within the life of Israel. And this person looks very genuine. He's very persuasive. Indeed, his ministry is very impressive. He can perform signs and wonders. He can even predict them in advance. He's almost like another Moses in that sense. How on earth can this be a false teacher well, you know that he's a false teacher because of what he says. And he, he says, let us go after other gods. Let us serve them. And the bottom line in his teaching is, stop worshipping the God of the Bible. Start worshipping other things instead. And you might ask, well, why does God allow a false teacher like that to arise, even within his people? And not only that, but why does God allow such a false teacher to perform miraculous signs even, which seem to add authenticity and credibility to such a teacher? Well, the next few words explain that for us, don't they? Moses says, the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And you see, God is not to blame for false teachers like this. And yet in his providence, he does allow them in order to test and prove his own people. One commentator, Peter Craigie, puts it like this. He says, the temptation posed by this persuasive false prophet would test the true disposition 
of the hearts of the Israelites. And while the temptation was genuinely dangerous, the overcoming of that temptation would strengthen the people in their love of God and obedience to his commands. It is for his people's good, ultimately, that God allows these things. And it's still true today, isn't it? Idolatry can arise from a false teacher, someone whose ministry can look impressive, someone whose ministry sounds very persuasive, someone maybe even who claims to perform miraculous deeds. And yet if he's telling you to give your worship to anyone or anything other than the God of the Bible, he is a false teacher by definition. And then thirdly, Moses says, idolatry can also arise from your friends and family. That's what he says in the next paragraph, verses 6 and following. He says, if your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or, or so on, your wife, entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods. So imagine the, the scenario, you're a, a faithful believer, you're a true worshipper of the true God. And yet sadly that's not the case for some of the people who are closest to you in life. Maybe members of your own family. Maybe your spouse even. Maybe some of your closest friends. And Moses knows this is a real challenge to the believer. Listening to some false teacher is one thing, isn't it? But when it's your nearest and when it's your dearest, well, that puts a whole new slant on things, doesn't it? And some of you know it for yourself. You're, you're in that kind of situation in your Christian life. You're, you're getting ready for church maybe on a Sunday morning and someone in your household says to you, you're not going to church, are you? Why on earth do you want to do that? Isn't it just a waste of time? Why don't you do something else on your Sundays? Or you're at school, or you're at college, or in the workplace, and there are those around you in your friendship circle. And from time to time they say to you, well, you don't really believe all that nonsense in the Bible, do you? Have you not grown out of that yet? Just give it up. Come and join us in what we're doing. Live our way. Live by our beliefs and, and our standards. Worship the things that we worship in life. It's difficult, isn't it? Idolatry can arise from your friends and family. And then in the final paragraph, verses 12 to 18, idolatry can arise from society as a whole. And there's a, a rather different situation described here. It's not the case that idolatry is arising in a particular person's heart or from some false teacher or from friends and family around them. But here, this is what you might call institutional idolatry. And that is the leaders of a particular area, a particular city, endorse a form of idolatry. And then the society as a whole becomes entrenched in that idolatry. It comes to shape them and define them as a society. And the whole society turns away from the worship of the true God 
and starts practicing all kinds of idolatry and immorality that even a generation previously would have been almost unthinkable. It's incredibly relevant to us today, isn't it? Moses is saying idolatry can become institutionalized. A whole society can go after it. Those in positions of leadership in the society can set an agenda whereby the worship of the true God is slowly just pushed to one side. And in its place, a new morality is offered and a new system of beliefs, new values, new worship. And that, in time, becomes the norm on the level of a whole society. And so Moses is saying to the people of Israel in these verses, reject idolatry from wherever it arises. Whether that's in your own heart, whether that's from some false teacher, whether that's the persuasions of your friends and family members, or whether that's on the the level of society as a whole, Whatever form of idolatry it is, whatever way in which it rears its head, reject that idolatry. Don't give in to it. Reject idolatry wherever it arises and however it manifests itself. Now the question is, well, how do we actually do that? So far we've only identified those four main sources of idolatry. But we've not actually looked at how practically we can effectively fight off and reject idolatry. But I want you to see that throughout these verses, there are three simple and main principles applied in order to reject idolatry. And in the remaining time we've got this evening, let's just look at those three simple principles uh, to see how as God's people we can implement these things in order to reject idolatry, however and wherever it may arise. So here's principle number one, that is stick to God's word. Stick to God's word. That's what Moses underlines, especially in the final verse of chapter 12, isn't it? Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. So this first principle in fighting idolatry is very, very simple, isn't it? Just stick to God's word. And these people of Israel as they settle down in the land and as they face these ongoing temptations towards idolatry from these different sources that we've looked at. The first answer is simply that they keep God's word close at hand. They need to make sure that they're familiar with it. They're going to need to read God's word. They're going to need to study God's word. They're going to need to hear it being taught to them. And then, with God's help, they must obey what God's word commands them. And in doing that, they must avoid two common pitfalls when it comes to obeying God's word. On the one hand, they must not add to God's word. So they mustn't think that somehow God's word is insufficient. And really what they need is a few extra rules on top of that to make themselves truly holy. That in itself is really a a kind of idolatry, isn't it? It's putting themselves and their own words in the place of God and his word. So they must not add anything to the word of God. 
But on the other hand, they must not take anything away from God's word either. They mustn't read parts of what God has said to them and think, well, that's not really important for us to believe. That's not really something that we should believe and obey. We can just forget about that. No, that's just going to open the door to idolatry, isn't it? So simply they must stick to God's word. They must go every bit as far as God's word goes. And then not an inch further than that. Simply they must obey everything that God has commanded them. And of course that principle applies to us as well, doesn't it, as God's people today. If we want to successfully fight off idolatry from wherever that temptation comes to us. First and foremost, we must stick to God's word. Read it, meditate upon it. Listen to it being taught. And then having done so, obey what God has commanded us. And of course, we can only do that with God's help, by his spirit empowering us to live new lives of obedience. And in this, we need to make sure we're never adding to God's word, never putting extra requirements on top of it, never going beyond what the scriptures say, but at the same time, not holding back from what scripture says either, not setting aside parts of it as if they're irrelevant for us. Simply stick to God's word. Everything that he has commanded us, by his help, be careful to do it. And then secondly, fear God's judgment. And I'm sure you probably noticed, didn't you, when we were reading the passage earlier on, there's a lot about judgment in there. And if we're completely honest, this is very difficult for us to get a handle on, isn't it? What are we to do with those verses about Uh, People being stoned to death, even for encouraging people towards idolatry, never mind actually committing idolatry themselves. Well, there are a number of things we need to keep in mind as we read verses like that. The first thing that we need to remember is how evil idolatry really is. Don't underestimate that. Idolatry is robbing the true God of the worship that he's due. It's giving that worship to a created thing instead. It's an act of rebellion against God. And to underline just how evil idolatry is, in chapter 12, verse 31, Moses points to the most heinous form of idolatry that existed, namely child sacrifice the way that they burned their sons and their daughters in the fire uh, to their gods. And maybe we think, well, we live in a very different time today and that kind of idolatry uh, doesn't really exist, not in our time, not in our place. Well, maybe we're not so different as we think. True people don't worship Molech or Baal or whoever today. And yet it is true to say, isn't it, that uh, the people of 21st century Western culture have set up for themselves an idol which they call choice. And in the worship of choice, many people are more than happy to sacrifice their own children. Uh, We're not so different, are we? Idolatry, you see, is pure evil. Don't underestimate it. 
And with that in mind, remember as well that the judgments described here are God's judgments. So this is not the people of Israel taking matters into their own hands. This is not them overreacting in a barbaric way. Now remember, this is God's word and this is therefore God's judgment against idolatry. Now the tricky thing is, of course, that this is God's judgment, not as we normally think of it in, the terms, in terms of the final judgment, but this is the judgment of God being enacted by a particular people group within history, namely Old Testament Israel. And that brings us then to the, the third thing we need to remember. And that is that when we come to verses like this, we need to call to mind the fact that we live in a very different era of salvation history. Simply, we're not Old Testament Israel. So one commentator has put it like this, helpfully. The death penalty described here belongs to the fact that Israel's constitution had a real presence in a political religious world. It was itself a political religious entity. In the New Testament, the church is not constituted in this way. Basically, the church is not a political religious entity. We're not a nation state as the people of Israel were. Christ's kingdom, he himself said, is not of this world. And as the New Testament tells us, the sword of judgment is in the hands of the state, not in the hands of the New Testament church. So how do we read these verses as Christians today in light of those three caveats that I've just outlined? Well, the answer is that we don't need to think to ourselves, well, who do we need to go and stone for idolatry? Of course not. The answer and the response is, is rather fear God's judgment. That's the point, isn't it? Fear God's judgment. Because these verses show to us the judgment of God that stands against the evil of idolatry. And therefore, we need to repent of idolatry. Whatever it is that we seek to worship and pursue and value and seek satisfaction and safety and security in that is not God, turn aside from that. Trust in him alone. Seek forgiveness in Christ. Because this awful judgment that idolatry deserves and which we deserve as idolaters has been poured out upon Christ when he died on the cross in our place. That's the response, isn't it? Fear the judgment of God. Flee to Christ for safety and for forgiveness. And then thirdly and finally, remember God's grace. Remember God's grace. I hope you notice that alongside all of this talk of judgment in these verses, there is also a lot of grace in there as well. And on the one hand, Moses reminds the people of past grace. So for example, verse 5, The Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery. And as God's people face these various temptations towards idolatry, Moses wants the people of Israel to remember all that their God has already done for them. He's redeemed them. He set them free from slavery. He's brought them to himself. He's bound them to himself in covenant love. He is their God. They're his people. He's given good promises to them. 
He's provided for them all the way through the wilderness. He's brought them to this place. Thus far, the Lord has helped them. And when the temptation to idolatry rears its ugly head in any of those four ways that we've mentioned this evening, they must remember God's past grace. Why turn aside from a God who has been so incredibly gracious towards you? And today, when idolatry rears its ugly head and we feel that pull of temptation to drag us away from the true worship of the true God, remember past grace remember all that God has done for you that he has brought you to himself that he's your God and you're his beloved child he's provided for you and most of all he has redeemed you from your slavery to sin and he's done so through the, through the blood of the Passover lamb who is Christ Jesus our Passover lamb Remember all the grace that God has already shown to you. Why turn aside from a God who has been so incredibly gracious to you? Why give your worship to anything else? And not only can we look back on past grace, but as well as that, we can look forward, can't we, to future grace. And throughout this passage, Moses reminds the people of what God will do in the future for them. He's about to drive out the nations before them. He's going to give them the land. He's going to give them their inheritance to dwell in. He's going to be with them in the land to bless them. And if they turn away from idolatry, then, as verse 17 puts it, the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. And likewise, we can look ahead to future grace, can't we? That we as God's people today, as we reject idolatry, as we remain faithful to him, he will be pleased to bless us graciously. And beyond this life, he will bring us into the full enjoyment of our inheritance in Christ when at last we acquire possession of it. People of God, this is how to reject idolatry from wherever it arises. Stick to God's word. Fear God's judgment. And remember God's grace to you in Christ. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize that as your people today, we live in an environment where idolatry will just keep on rearing its ugly head time and time again and we're never completely rid of it in this life and we confess before you that sometimes that idolatry arises even in our own hearts and we need no external compulsion because our own hearts are like factories of idols and as well as that we live in a world there are where there are false teachers and false gospels all around us calling us to withhold our worship from you and to direct it elsewhere. We know that often some of our closest friends and family members can try and persuade us away from you. We know the difficulty that that poses for us. We know that we live in a society where increasingly 
you are being airbrushed from life and different worship and a different morality is embraced in society as a whole. And so we pray that you would help us to apply all of these principles of this great chapter as your people today as we seek to reject the idolatry that surrounds us. Help us to stick to your word, never adding to it, never taking away from it, but obeying it all by the power of the Spirit. Help us to recognize just how sinful idolatry is and therefore fear the judgment that it deserves and will one day be poured out upon it. And help us always to remember your grace towards us in Christ. Thank you that the judgment fell upon him, that he took all of our punishment for all of our sin, for all of our idolatry. In him we're redeemed. In him we're set free from slavery. We're brought into relationship with you. And we are promised a glorious eternal inheritance. And help us to see that because of your astounding grace to us in Christ, the grace that you've already shown to us, and the grace that we look forward to in the years to come and indeed throughout eternity, help us to recognize that because of that grace, we have every reason to respond with faithfulness, worshiping you alone. Help us, Father, to reject idolatry from whatever it arises. And in Jesus' name, we pray all of these things. Amen.